and welcome back to Crop It Like It's Hot, sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company, and brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show. I'm Alice Dyer, your host, and I think we've got a really interesting episode in store for you today. But first things first, don't forget, if you're on the basis register, you can get one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of this episode along with your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. So, biostimulants. There is a lot of industry scepticism about some of these products, which is quite understandable. But today we're going to explore how certain products could have a place in the future of crop production and protection. Now, this is quite a broad topic and there are many different types of biostimulant. There are non-microbials, including seaweed extracts, humics, phosphites and amino acids. And then there are also the microbials, which break down into things like bacteria and fungi. And this is where our focus is going to lie today. Shortly, I'll be speaking to Tim Parton, who successfully uses bacillus and a number of other biological products as part of a very much integrated approach. But we've also got some industry opinion on how these could fit into more conventional systems, as well as some completely independent pharma-led trials, which have shown that biological products really could have a key role to play in serial disease control in the near future. But first off, we've got Murray Smedley here, who is not only Managing Director of ILEX and Sciences, but he is also Chair of the UK Task Force for the European Biostimulant Industry Council, also known as EBIT. Hi Alice, how are we doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, fine. Thanks, fine indeed. Good, good. So, shall we start with the basics? Sure. What, what exactly is a biostimulant? Uh, okay, so biostimulants are, are perhaps best described as substances that, that meet midway between plant protection chemicals, so those that are specifically designed to control pests, diseases and weeds, and uh, fertilisers. Uh, so biostimulants um, effectively uh, are there to assist in the uh, nutrient use efficiency, as we might call it. So their aim is to improve the uh, efficiency of nutrient use, basically assist the plant in uh, helping itself to recover from abiotic stress. So that could be with a lack of nutrients, uh, with a lack of water, sunlight, um, those sorts of things. So the important bit that, that, that to EVIC, the European Biostimulant Industry Council, is very keen, and all its members are, to, is to ensure that uh, it's very clear to uh, uh, growers and users of biostimulants that they, they are not plant protection products, uh, they're not there to kill in any way, Okay, so it really is quite a broad term. We're going to hear from Tim Parton in a minute, who's successfully integrated biostimulants into his system. But I think there's quite a lot of scepticism from growers about some of these products. Um, You know, some people dub them as snake oil. What do you think might be fueling that scepticism? Very much so, Alice, very much so indeed. So uh, because there hasn't been any control or regulation of biostimulants previously has been uh, very easy for suppliers to the market to make very broad claims, uh, uh, very strong claims that they will guarantee increases in quality, crop vigour, yield, etc, uh, etc. Et so I can see that there is certainly some scepticism uh, from, uh, from, from the farming industries generally based on the historical claims that, and uh, lack of substance to those claims. So those new regulations you're talking about did did they come in last year is that right they did yes they were voted into force in uh, june 
2019, uh, with the purpose by July 2020 to be fully enforced. So these regulations basically mean that the product has to do what it says on the tin um, and there needs to be trials data and things like that supporting these claims. Very so, Alice. Yes, indeed. So uh, you, you have to show through field trials, glasshouse trials and research that your biostimulant material does actually or, or is recognised and can be proven to achieve the claims that you make. Yeah, okay. And your position also involves consulting on registrations for both chemical and non-chemical products. That's correct. Are you seeing an increased interest from agribusinesses um, or ag chem companies to move towards these more biological products rather than chemical solutions? Yes, we are, Alice, certainly. Um, We see that, uh, as you say, an overall interest in biostimulants, both from the obviously growers themselves that are using them and also from industry and from the larger chemical manufacturers. Uh, All of them now have R&D and development uh, programs involving biostimulants. They can see there is a value for for biostimulants. The industry as a whole has spent many years talking about snake oil, as you say, uh, and products that can't be proven uh, and might, might not offer any value at all, to now identify that um, the chemical regulatory landscape for pesticides is very complicated, it's very expensive, it's often political as well, and biostimulants offer an opportunity for growers to have another, um, another piece of kit in a toolbox, which is neither fertiliser nor pesticide. It, it can be a very important part to achieve healthy, high-yielding quality crops in a sustainable way. So biostimulants are there to really help the plant to help itself. Thanks very much, Murray. That's all, Alice. Thank you for calling. Cheers for now. Now to introduce a bit of an on-farm perspective and hear about some biostimulants in practice. Tim Parton is a farmer from Staffordshire and he's going to talk to us about some of the big changes he's seen to his crops after adopting a system that involves the use of various biostimulants and biological products. Hi Alice. Hi Tim. So to start with, would you mind just giving us a bit of background on your farm and the role of biostimulants within that? Yeah, I started... Oh, a long time ago in soil, um, I was aware that yields had plateaued. You know, I was putting more nitrogen on to get the same yields, but not getting any more. Um, and then I became more aware of carbon. So I was aware that the more nitrogen I was putting on, the more carbon I was burning, because every kilo of nitrogen that isn't used, you're burning 100 kilos of carbon, and that, that just can't carry on. So I, I needed another solution. Um and then gradually, as you go down that path of finding more biological solutions, doors just keep opening as you're going down that path. And there's so much we don't know. You know, We only understand about 4% of what goes on in the soil. We've got so much to learn. Going down the biological route, I've got more into to, to using biology to, to, to solve the problems because every time you use a chemical on your soil or on your plants, there's always an adverse effect. You know, the air is 78% nitrogen, so it's free. Why would why would anybody not want to tap into that? So by using nitrogen-fixing bacteria, you can start and bring some of that down. I, we've got a long way to go, but I know I can fix anywhere between 40 and 100 kilos of nitrogen. So nitrogen bacteria, you know, is just a no-brainer in my mind. I grew it up myself, 
so it makes it a cheap form. I can normally do that for about five pounds a hectare, along with, along with phosphorus releasing bacteria. And, and but by brewing up that, I can also fight seal-borne diseases as well. How long have you been kind of dabbling with this? Um, and where did you kind of start? Was there a certain product that you started with, or a certain method that you started with? So I probably first started going down the biological route eight years ago. Um, my knowledge has just increased. We've had lots of successes, and we've had we've had some not so successes. It's, but you've got to be trying lots of different stuff. You know, it's not always going to go right. This is a new thing. But and what what kind of impact have you seen on wheat crop performance and soil health? Crop performance uh, yields do keep going up. Now we're rising. Uh, last year we were anywhere between nine and eleven and a half tons to the hectare, depending on soil type. Obviously, the lighter soils didn't yield quite as much because we just couldn't hold the water which is another reason why I went down this route because the more carbon I can can sequence in the soil the more water I can hold the the soil is a sponge Um, and this last winter has really shown that in the fact that we've had all this rain but my infiltration rates have always been an inch anywhere between four and six minutes even after all that rain it's it's just bottomless the soil will just cope with it okay and you're very whole system so no-till real focus on soil health um it's not just you know put a product on and it'll fix it but is there a certain product that you would say has particular merit within this system uh bacillus subtilis and bacillus liquefacians the liquefacian is, is bacillus subtilis is stronger cousin so if the bacillus subtilis can't handle rust coming in just for an example the bacillus liquefacian will gobble it up. They, they just eat, eat the pathogens and uh, and do the job for me. So it's, those two are really good for fighting disease. Bacillus subtilis and trichoderma that I put down when I'm drilling, they do pretty much near, not quite the same, but very nearly the same job as mycorrhizal fungi. They're just earlier on in the succession of soil. So they're a real good starting point until your, your, your mycorrhizal fungi start to um, get established in the soil. You can sort of take that step in and um, influence that, the rhizosphere around the plant to get the results that we want. So how many applications would you make in a season? That really depends. The, the, the nitrogen-fixing bacteria, well, I'd only do one because I, I put that down next to the seed and drill it. The disease control, we're still learning, but probably I did, if I do a similar amount to doing the normal chemical approach, but I think that's more my brain is entrenched in that system. I think it'll get to the stage where you've, you've got to become a farmer again for this system, so you've got to be looking at your crops and, and doing it on a more regular basis. And I think the minute I saw any rust coming in, I'd do, I, I'd do an application. So it's, um, I'd also do a lot of foliar nutrition so by keeping the plant the correct optimum nutrition we shouldn't have the disease problems in the first place most of the disease problems are coming in because we've got we're we're applying synthetic nitrogen so we're getting all that top foliar growth which is creating weak very weak cell walls and that's where you're going to get your pest and your disease problems coming in it's a problem we caused by putting all this nitrogen on so to try and stop that i will enhance cell strength by putting silica on, by putting more available calcium on to keep that cell wall strong so if the disease comes in, the plant just rubs it off. 
it's, it's all, again, I say, working with nature and getting the optimum nutrition. What about for pests and kind of insecticides, things like that? Because uh, am I right in thinking you, you don't use any insecticides? No, I don't. I haven't used insecticides for five years now. Um, insecticides are, are, are the same as fungicides, really. Once you apply an insecticide, you might kill 40%, 60% of your target that you're after, but I guarantee you'll kill 100% of all the predators. So once you've gone down that route of applying an insecticide, so I stopped using them, and now my natural predators do the job for me. I don't use seed dressings either. Because the, the difference, you know, when you put a seed dressing on, unless that, there is an actual problem there that you need to use that seed dressing. So I always test to make sure that I don't need to use a seed dressing. But once you put that seed dressing on, you don't get that synergism between the soil. So you're not getting that synergism between the fungi in the soil. And it will hold the plant back when I've done trials this year where, where I haven't used the seed dressing. The plant... The, the germination was a week, ten days quicker than where I'd use the seed dressing because you're just stunting the, the plant back. You're not getting that interaction between the fungi, so everything's just slower working. And you know why would you want to put a barrier there when I'm trying to get that interaction between fungi? Yeah. And it's the same thing with insecticides. On a dewy morning, if you walk my fields, you'll see all the cobwebs all across the field. And obviously your system's very low disturbance, low input. Do you think biologicals, like the ones you've talked about, still have a place on, say, a more intensive system where more metal or chemical solutions are used? I think it can be used. I think the question I would ask is, is why would you want to spend all that money when there's no need to? And you're never going to get your soil moving forward because you're always interrupting. Fungi is such a very delicate species it's just like somebody putting a ball and chain through your house and every time you start to rebuild it somebody's putting a ball and chain through again it's never going to get established definitely bacillus will do the job it's just understanding what you're trying to do but it's not just using bacillus on its own it's getting the optimum nutrition in the plant right so the bacillus will work with the nutrition for the plant so it's it's, it's all part of the jigsaw and it's it's not um down to one piece of the jigsaw there's a lot of people trying them and say they're not using them correctly and then they're getting poor results and then they're they're, they're just uh, dismissing them whereas you know i've proved that they do work and i'm having fantastic results so i can't see why they wouldn't work anywhere else yeah and then in terms of herbicides um because you you still use glyphosate don't you but you apply fulvic acid to offset that is that right I do use fulvic acid as much as I can because the CEC sites in fulvic acid is just loads, so I can use less glyphosate and use it more effectively. And by using uh, um, molasses with it, we tend to find that the, the biology will, will eat the, the, the glyphosate once it's in, it, in the soil, so we're not getting that runoff of glyphosate into field drains. A friend of mine who's tested his water, he's found that where he's used fulvic acid, or used um, a molasses product with it, he's, he's just not getting the runoff in the drain. So I think it's just down to the biology, eating the glyphosate uh, and processing it. There's farms in America where you know, the soils are so biological now that if they put endomethylene on, it doesn't work because the biology eats it so quick. <laughs> it doesn't have time to, to work. 
So is that something anyone could do with glyphosate and folic acid, or is that, again, something that would need to be part of a bigger... It's something anybody could do. It's just creating that, those cationic chain sites, so you've got more sites, because especially if people have got hard water and they're not using a water softener, the roundup's getting locked up before they even put it onto the plant, so they're just not getting full use of the glyphosate product. But by using fulvic acid, you've just got far more sites that you can make it far better. And by having that um, organic matter within the Nurture M product that I use, it means it's, it's holding onto the plant leaf longer because it's, it, it's, um, it's not drying out as fast, as fast, which is giving the plant far more time to absorb it. And then earlier you said you brew your own biostimulants. How exactly does that work? Say if a listener wanted to do this for themselves, where would, where and how would they start? It works really well. Um, it, it just makes the whole process cheaper. That's not the reason for doing it. Uh, and basically it's just a holding tank and an air pump and a food source. So it's, it's just putting the microbes in there. I get all my microbes from, from Edifos. Um And then it, so you just add the microbes, you add a food source and you brew up for 24 hours. And it's as simple as that. It's not a complicated process. It's very simple. Cleanliness is, is a big issue. It says you're not brewing up bad bacteria. But um, other than that, it's a very simple process. And then in terms of costs, how much would you be spending, I don't know, per hectare? And how much would you have been spending previously when you were more conventional? Uh, last year, I, I did my disease control. It was about £40 a hectare. There's a massive cost saving there. But again, it is important to get the right advice to make sure you understand what you're doing rather than just going out there thinking, that sounds really easy, I'll do it. It's, um, it is easy, but you just need to to understand what you're doing that's the, that's the most important bit yeah it's a process rather than an instant solution yes all right brilliant well thank you very much more than welcome hi i'm natalie wood you're a country arable agronomist and i want to tell you about the value of sulfur now sulfur is vital in the crop for many processes including efficient uptake and utilization of nitrogen We've seen yield increases of up to two tonnes per hectare from having sufficient sulphur applied little and often with nitrogen applications. Sulphur deficiency can cost you up to £112 per hectare in lost yields, therefore it is a sound investment with every pound spent on sulphur giving £5 in return. Therefore, an NS product such as Yorabella Axan is a good way to ensure you're not caught short. For more information, please visit yara.co.uk. So next up, we've got soil and plant health specialist at Frontier, Jamie Stotzka. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? Hi, Alice. I'm all right. Thank you. Good. So you guys at Frontier are also looking into the types of products that Tim has just been talking about, but obviously in a slightly different way in that Tim is brewing his own. What kind of results are you seeing from products like mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria in the field? Yeah, we're seeing interesting results on those. We have started rolling out trials with uh, Frontier, and particularly in small plot trials, we see um, significant responses to, for example, bacterial seed treatments. Um, we actually now supply all of our oil seed treated with bacillus. So, you know, some very clear uh, impact there on yields and plant health. Okay, and what Tim is doing is really fascinating, and it's obviously working very well for him, but it's also 
he's taking a very much whole systems approach. So what I, and I expect our listeners would want to know is whether you believe products like these could also have a place in more conventional systems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are sort of two levels to that. Um, so in a system like, like Tim's, where you have um, increased microbial diversity and you, you know, he's looking much more after soil health um, and it's much more sort of uh, conscious of, of, of how he's managing that, you probably have um, an opportunity to see some larger effects of some of these products, particularly mycorrhizal fungi would fit better into that kind of system where perhaps you have reduced tillage, you have more diverse rotations, more diverse um, plants in the ground. Um, but some of the other more broad spectrum um, treatments like bacteria, for example, I think fit very well into conventional systems as well. We see uh, some much more easily applied type of products now that can be tank mixed with conventional inputs, for example. And like I say, those those seed treatments they can be mixed with conventional seed treatments and then followed up with uh, with a you know very kind of um, traditional crop management program. So I think there's there's room for both, and, and different products fit into different scenarios, perhaps. Okay, and you say you could tank mix some of these products. Do you think? there might ever be a case where they could replace certain conventional chemistry? I see them more as running alongside um, traditional chemistry. I mean, there are some bio, um, some organisms that have such strong plant health effects that they're actually regulated as crop protection products. Uh, but when we're looking at the sort of biostimulant realm of um, biologicals, um, for me, I see them. I see them as supporting um, plant vigor, plant health, and resilience. Um, uh, you know, supporting nutrient efficiency and nutrient uptake, and really bolstering the performance of the crop. But I see that more as a as a parallel sequenced application, perhaps also in combination with non-microbial biostimulants, um, to to get the best potential out of uh, out of the crops that that we have, um, and and really get the most out of the input systems that we have in place. And I also think it's quite an exciting time to be part of the arable sector at the moment. There's this real kind of drive for change and we're seeing a lot more interest in non-chemical solutions. Why do you think this is? Well, I think there's two, two levels to that in a way. So one thing is that we, we have started to understand a lot more about these organisms. So the more we understand about soil biology and what this type of microbe does um, and how it interacts with plants, particularly those very symbiotic organisms, the more we understand how to harness those and how to, how to use them in, in the systems that we have and how to use them in modern crop production. At the same time, in the past, we often saw a lot of these products fall down when it came to applications so um, they were difficult to use they couldn't be mixed with other um, inputs um, perhaps there had to be specialist application techniques and what we now see is much more quality assured and well-produced products coming from different manufacturers around the world that allow us to to really utilize these much more easily okay brilliant thanks jamie it's a pleasure now, on the back of what Jamie just said, I have tracked down some trials on this organised by Crop Health North, which is a project coordinated by the Yorkshire Agricultural Society. They have conducted some independent farmer-led research into alternative approaches to fungal diseases, most notably septoria and cereal crops using biological products. 
Professor Robert Edwards, Head of Natural and Environmental Sciences at Newcastle University, was scientific coordinator of the project. And he's here to tell us more about what they found. So, Robert, how many farmers took part in this study? Over the, they, were, they were a core group of um, four or five uh, farmers, um, many who ran in quite large outfits, including um, well, the farm manager and now farm director at Newcastle University. So they were they are primarily growers, but some of them are actually operating. Um, one of them is operating for the university, and the other organisation, again, very applied organisation that was involved in this was Stockbridge Technology Centre. And what product were you looking at in particular here? We were looking at um, Bacillus subtilis. Okay, so that's one of the products that Tim mentioned. Yes, in primary part, this was controlling sectoria, utilising Bacillus applications. So this was comparing the Bacillus product to a conventional fungicide strategy? Yes, it was. I mean, we utilised two winter wheat varieties, um, one Skyfall, which is a, a modern disease-resistant uh, cultivar, one slightly older, which is more disease-susceptible, called Leeds. And we had three treatment regimes. We had um, what we called an integrated pest management uh, regime, where we had a microbial seed treatment, so we treated the seeds with the bacillus, and then we used conventional chemistries at, t- at time points during the growth cycle of the wheat, but only when we saw high, high disease pressure. Uh, and in, we would then in alternatively at low disease pressure utilise biopesticides um, uh, at around standard time, spraying times. Then we had a biological treatment, which is just microbial seed treatments and biopesticides only at standard spraying times. Um, and then we had conventional chemistries. So we had chemical seed treatments and then conventional fungicides, again, applied at timings which you would normally utilise um, chemicals to control disease so what we had was kind of absolute traditional chemistry absolute kind of like utilized biologicals and then something that sat in between so you were only going to reach for your chemicals when your biologicals were really being pushed in terms of um, their ability to control disease and what kind of results did each treatment show what we found was in fact the there were no significant differences in yield between the three different treatments so we actually for three seasons we successfully demonstrated that utilizing the uh, biopesticide um, product you could in fact get adequate disease control that you went using stuff to in terms of yield uh, what we found actually in the final season is that with some of the biopesticide treatments at some sites we're actually seeing some improvements to protein content in grain the way these bacillus work as they actually stimulate the plant to alter its metabolism to make them more resistant to incoming pathogens. There's also some thinking that they may have growth promoting and vigor effects uh, that extend beyond disease prevention and may actually give you improvements in crop in, in crop yield characteristics and, and quality characteristics. So this really is something that most farmers could potentially introduce into their own systems? I think the major difference actually is when you're dealing with biopesticides, what you really need to understand is the pest. Whereas tick, rather kind of traditionally, when you're treating with conventional fungicides, chemical fungicides, you're really looking at growth stage of the plants and obviously kind of things like weather and disease incidents. But it's kind of the IPRPN approach when you're utilising these biologicals is much more about understanding the pathogen you're dealing with than it is about utilising, say, broad-spectrum fungicides where you can use a much more 
blanket approach, perhaps not quite so thoughtfully. And some of these products, I think, have got quite a reputation um, for being high in cost because they're maybe more suited to um, horticultural crops um, that are higher value. Could that be a barrier to adoption? What we were doing here is we were taking products that were licensed for use in uh, horticultural applications in the UK. And what we did was we actually took a product that was deemed safe enough to be utilised in horticultural crops and got a special licence to use it on um, an arable application. It's quite a tricky one to kind of describe at the moment because at the moment these products are only available really as horticultural um, application. Yeah. Which means that they tend to have a higher premium on them. But the way that we see it was as you expand the use of these things, the costs will drop because, you know, if you make the... um, if you open up markets, then the cost of producing them on scale will come down. I think certainly for where you've got low disease incidence years, biologicals can work extremely well. And, um, you know, we take the view that you use biologicals first and chemistry second, and, you know, in years where you, you've you got moderate disease pressure. I mean, all the other costs of, of application, um, there were no technical difficulties in the applications. They used bog standard spray equipment um, no difference in harvesting so it, it, everything else is kind of like standard it's really just the cost of the product and things like these biological products are they at risk of developing resistance in the same way that fungicides might be they don't appear to be no okay because what they're doing there they're, they're stimulating multi multiple mechanisms so a typically a fungicide will have one major mechanism of action yeah. So all the fungus, if the fungus mutates the proteins or whatever they're targeted by the fungicide, it will become resistant. If you've got, say, five or six or seven different ways in which the plant is defending itself against the fungus, the fungus now has to evolve multiple mechanisms of resistance. So that becomes immediately much less probable. And these things have already, you know, they're already kind of, uh, the plant's already evolving constantly with the, with the fungus. So yeah. stimulating things, it's already kind of got. So resistance risks are very low. Excellent. And as Tim said earlier, it's great to see that these kind of farmer-led trials are going on behind the scenes. I I don't have an enormous background in biological control. I was actually quite very pleasantly surprised at the outcomes of it. A lot of people were quite sceptical about the value of these things, but they seem to work really rather well. Excellent. Well, thank you for sparing the time to chat with us, Robert. Yeah, thanks for your time. It's good. And that's all we've got time for for today, I'm afraid. So thank you for tuning in. And next time we will be delving into the world of net zero and how arable farmers can not only strive to meet it, but also potentially monetize from it. Catch you soon.